All right. Welcome back to the show. Patrick Chappelle here on the Patrick Podcast. Hope you all are keeping safe and doing well in the midst of everything that's happening right now in your particular city and in the country uh, and in the world. Today, we got a special episode with my dear friend, Derek McCartley, and I think you're going to like it. Derek is a musician. He's a pastor. He is uh, a friend to many. He has had quite the journey in life. And we talk a lot about that, and we even discuss all of the things that are happening right now in our country that's surrounding um, just the death of black bodies and and the movement of uh, Black Lives Matter to our response to what we've been hearing and things of that nature. So that comes uh, a little bit into the episode, so buckle up and enjoy uh, just hearing about the life and work of Derek, and then we uh, have a good conversation. So I think it's going to be great. I think you're going to enjoy it. Um, I think it will hopefully be helpful to you as you continue to have um, these conversations uh, in your friend groups and in your family uh, and in your, within your coworkers and things of that nature. So, yeah, that's kind of what's happening. Um a few things before uh, we check in with Ben, I would say just a few things. And and one is, uh, and I'll be talking about more about this as the weeks roll on. <clears throat> but just remember, folks, this work that we're all waking up to, that many of us are waking up to. Some of us have been awakened to this kind of work for a while now. But for those that are waking up to this work of injustice that the things that we need to do to to remy this thing that has been happening in our country understand that it is a continuous work it's not a one shot deal one post one march one conversation is not all that it's going to take it's going to take many posts many conversations many ways of actually acting um, as we try to move this needle forward. And it has moved forward in some ways. Things are happening differently than when things were happening four years ago. But we must keep working. We must keep about the business of standing up for the oppressed and for those who live in the margins of our society. So. Yes, do the posting, say what needs to be said, but know that there's more work to do. And it's not saying that this is going to be um, all hard and difficult work, but it is going to be work. And so I hope that you um, find courage in that. And I hope that you find realization in that this is something that is a continuous thing and not just a one time deal. Okay. Ben, how's it going? <clears throat> it's going. Uh, this has been a really heartbreaking set of days, but it's it's a very constructive heartbreak, I think. Um, uh, I've been thinking a lot about how thankful I am to have you as a friend. Um, not only for the sake of being able to give 
give someone like me insight and and wisdom into this um but because uh, as we were joking about before we started recording because you're you're patient with people that look like me um you you know that we get it wrong a lot and you you are just patient and give grace um and i i definitely believe that that's because you believe in in a good result out of all this however long it takes and that's really inspiring and really helpful to have um i listen to i also am really thankful for this podcast because i i uh, i'm just really grateful to have come in contact with people like jeff magruder and Brittany. um i went and listened to jeff's episode again on saturday just to like because it, it was weird to be away from my hometown while there were protests happening in it and i just wanted to listen to jeff because i remember he talked about in that latest episode growing up in nashville and i don't know it 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 was it was tough to be away from Nashville, but uh, I'm glad that I had this to to reference. Um, so thank you, thank you for that. Yeah, thanks, ma'am. Okay, folks. Oh, well, we have something else. Um, yeah. To to um, I I would just encourage uh, I would encourage white people to to i'm trying to be better at not being afraid of of what i feel um and i'm trying to be better at speaking up which i have not been good at in the past um and that's because there have already in the last several days been several white people who have shared things um that have changed my mind and have made me realize things that I'm doing wrong and have, you know, they haven't tagged me, but they're calling me out. And, and that's really useful for me. And that's really helpful for me. Um, and I've just been thinking about a a lot about like, who are the people that are experiencing that in, in my circle that, you know, gives me the responsibility to say something too. Who are the people that are listening to me? Um, and so I just encourage white people to realize that there are people listening to you. It might just be one person, but that's one person. It's right. a whole person. Um, yeah. It's, it, it does feel like adding to the noise, and there is this sense of, like, we do need to step out of the way and, and listen, but also, this problem is created because white people aren't listening to black people. Um, yeah. And so there's this responsibility, and it's our fault anyways, so it's, it's our responsibility. So I, I would just encourage you guys to speak up um, yeah. and stand up and, and continue to listen and continue to learn I, I, and never claim to be an expert. Um, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think a a, a nice uh, or a way to think about this, if you're to if you're needing still needing some more help to think about this, is prayer, contemplation, action. That is the that is the dance that 
that we should be about. We should be prayerful people and we should contemplate and and sit to discern what we do with what we've prayed about and what we know, right? But then we take action. And what I see in a lot of people is they find themselves stuck in one of these modes. They're all about the prayer, but there's no true contemplation. There's no true discernment and, and there's no action, right? Or they're all about the action and there's no prayer behind the action. There's no discernment. There's no contemplation behind the action or they're stuck in that middle space of I prayed about it. I know I should act, but I'm just sitting here contemplating what I should do. And and I actually don't end up doing anything, but just contemplating what might I do. So it is a thing that I think all three of those things are helpful, but I think we have to find ourselves in all those spaces. We pray, we're contemplative, we're contemplative, and then we move into action. That's good. So there you go, folks. All right. Here's Derek. Enjoy the show. We will see you next time. Peace. All right, Derek. Yo, you're here. I'm here. You're on. Finally, you're on the podcast. Welcome. Yeah, a long time coming. It's I know good to it's be here. been a long time coming. So, Derek, I'm glad to have you on the show today. We have so much to chat about. Um, but as I've been doing lately for my listeners, I try to try to chart back when I first met a guest. I'm okay. very bad at that. I'm very bad at remembering when I meet people. Other people are very good at that. But I didn't know if you if you knew of a the first time we've ever we ever chatted or met or you seen me or or whatever like what was do you yeah, have okay. a pinpointed moment I do I I know the exact moment and you're going to wow. laugh at it because <laughs> you you might actually once I say it I think you'll remember the context but you probably won't remember the encounter I can't wait So Growing up, I've been an impact kid since probably seventh grade or something like that. So, and I I'd gone every year until I was out of college. Right. And so I remember one year in high school, you had done this um, Mr. T routine that was just like <laughs> iconic. It was like the treat your mother right video. Oh wow! And like it, it was iconic. I mean, like it was legendary in our youth group. And yeah. so, like, to me, that was just, like, so, like, we are so far removed. You know what I mean? I was like, that's, like, Mr. T on stage. And I'm like, <laughs> Derek, I had on stunner shades with, like, some FUBUs on or something like that. Wow. Like, just a different style of life. Yeah. And, um, anyway. And you're, dat- and you're dating when this, when this took place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which was part of it, you know? Right. It's all, it's connected. Wow. And so anyways, um, I remember going to the Starbucks in the the campus center or whatever, and I saw you there and I was like, oh my gosh, like that's Mr. T, <laughs> who I didn't know at the time doubled as joke telling Patrick Chappelle. And so <laughs> they were two separate human beings to me. 
<laughs> and so anyways, I went up and I was like, hey, I'm Derek. And you're like, hello. And I was like, just wanted to say that I liked Mr. T. And you're like, cool. <laughs> and I was like, all right. Like, all right. Good chat. See you later. <laughs> So that oh, that is my, my that that was my first encounter with you. Whether you knew that I was who I was, that I that was my first memory of ever wow. seeing you in person. Wow. After that, I I think it may have been after I became or got into full time ministry and we're in the same ministry field. And I I know that we went and got coffee. Oh, and I think when you were you and Seth were linked up. Yeah, I remember uh, that. Like, really was kind of the first time we really started hanging out and like. You know what I mean? Like, right. Really kicking oh, yeah. like boys. So, wow, that's good. That's good. So you grew up in Nashville, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Murfreesboro. Murfreesboro. Okay. So for the listeners, Murfreesboro yeah, is for a listeners who know. <laughs> for who know, you know, right? You know, you know about the slick pig. You know about. <laughs> you know what's up with Murfreesboro. You understand. Um, and Murfreesboro is uh, to give you context. It's like a. A suburb, not really. I think that's it's a it's a city right outside of Nashville. Yeah, it's more yeah. than a suburb, uh, but it's yeah. definitely got its own character and vibe, culture, and everything else. Definitely. But location of uh, a, a big university here in the state of Tennessee. But mm. so you grew up in Murfreesboro. Um, now, what I know of you is that your your growings up, and then even kind of move movement even into life uh, and the work that you do and the communities that you're connected with and all of that has really been like a, a journey. Like you've, you've, you've existed physically in a lot of different environments and spaces. And so I'm, I'm curious to you, like when you look back at your upbringing in Murfreesboro, like what, what was that like for you growing up in Murfreesboro? Okay. I'm going to give an example of what it's like. I don't know if you or any anyone listening is familiar with the band called the devil, the devil wears Prada. So (laughs) (laughs) so if you're not familiar, you should just go listen to them. And once you listen, what I'm going to say will make sense. But I simultaneously had a devil wears Prada album playing at night while I was sleeping with a poster of Young Jeezy and Usher over my over my bed. I simultaneously in my closet had etnies that were paired with wow. a pair of old Jordans wow. um, and a Kobe Bryant jersey that I actually stole from my sister because she got it too big. Um, so yeah, man, my my life and community and spaces that I've occupied have been incredibly diverse, incredibly different. If anyone's familiar with the Enneagram, yeah. I am a seven through and through. Yeah. And so new experiences, uh, being satisfied by adventure, all of that really gets me going. And so <clears throat> a, a lot of different adventures and ideas and craziness has filled my life. Um, I'm a big outdoorsman, and so I've occupied a lot of outdoor spaces, hunting and fishing. So, okay, um, well, let me pause there. So how okay. did... How did that happen? So for those of you who are listening, is that especially if you've seen the cover art for the week, Derek is a black man. I am a mm. black man. If you don't know that by now, I don't know how you've missed that part. 
<laughs> but um, so I'm, I'm always curious, even for anyone, really, just how they got into certain things. So I'm, I'm just curious for you, this outdoorsman that you are currently still fishing and hunting and all that. Like, who was that a my dad was big into this and I got into this? Or my mom was big into this, I or I had friends who were, and I just really took to it. Like, what was what was that pathway for you? Yeah. So I'm gonna give you a a shallow answer and then a deeper answer. Not super deep, but deeper. So my dad has always been a, a huge fisherman, and mm-hmm. so he used to take me and my brother and my grandmother and my mom fishing. And I, I've got like videos of me fishing. When I was like four years old, and wow. so I've always loved that. I used to wake up like my dad would say we're going fishing on tomorrow morning which would be saturday and i just would not sleep all friday like so excited about the fish we might catch and all of this so hands down my dad definitely got me into that um a a bit of a deeper answer for some of that is there's in high school in high school there's some things that you can do and some places in your life that you can and spaces that you can enter that will gain you certain access. Um, and as a as a black man, there's certain pieces of your life that you either have to reject or adopt in order yeah. to gain said access or popularity yeah. with certain crowds. And so there was a piece of uh, out outdoorsmanship that was really popular at my high school, and so that was something that I wanted to adopt to achieve a certain status level, perhaps. Um, and there's some other things not just outdoors that kind of fall into that category, but there's just a, a, like a certain group that really got into doing like outdoor stuff, hiking and camping and stuff. And I like wanted to be popular with that group. And yeah. so I really like sold out for it a little bit more. Um, but that, you know, that, that faded pretty quickly because I fell in love with the outdoors, even through college, just hiking through the AT, not the whole thing, but different sections of the AT. Right. Um, and things like that but i would say my dad instilled that that initial love inside of me for it so what is it for you about fishing like what's the what's the i mean i feel like every fisherman has like a this is <laughs> this is it this is why i do it this is what like brings my soul alive yeah. like what is it like is it something what tell me about it like i you know i've cuz i've not i'm not a fisher pers- fisherman Fisher person? Uh-huh. I'm not fisher, a fisherman. Fisher <laughs> and and I think I've gone, I think I, I have a, a, a nugget memory when I was a very young of maybe my dad taking me fishing, like mm-hmm. one time. At least that's the memory that I have. And I just remember it was like, a, it felt like a one-off kind of thing. And it's just never something that I like fell in love with or had access to. And so it's, I'm always curious as to, whether it's fishing or golfing or basketball, like what what was it for you when it came to just with fishing, I guess? Yeah, for sure. So fishing, for me, a lot of people would say that like it's the great outdoors and just being in God's creation and stuff. And all of that is a great byproduct. But like fishing is 100% success driven for me. Like literally the idea of outsmarting like it's like a total primal man versus beast Ah, like nice outsmarting fish being being wittier being more crafty um tricking a fish into biting a lure is like that's it it's a kind of the same thing for hunting for me like when you're when you're smarter than nature um or when you're able to 
conquer the task at hand that's in front of you, then I think that's probably the biggest, biggest deal for me. So I do really enjoy just being outside. Um, not a huge fan of the sun, but I endure it for fishing. So, <laughs> I, but if you ever catch me fishing in the summer, I probably have long sleeves on and like a buff or something like that. Yeah. You're, but, you're um, trying to get extra chocolate. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but I do do it. Which is outside. fine. Extra chocolate is good. Exactly. I like yeah, it. Exactly. You know, the black of the berry, the sweet of the juice, my friends. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> um, and so I also use it as a pretty like a discipleship opportunity. I just enjoy oh, yeah, like taking good. people out. And, you know, if you ever go fish with me, there's a 100% chance that you got trapped into a depthful conversation. Because uh, <laughs> when you're on my boat, you can't go nowhere. Right. So you can't good. go nowhere. I dominate the conversation. Like when I'm on your podcast, we talk about what, what it is <laughs> you want us to talk about. And you at you, you circulate the questions you call it those. So when you're on my boat, uh, we're going to get real. We're going to talk about what's going on in your life. We'll talk about Jesus. We'll talk about his grace um, and all of those things. And so I, I enjoy that aspect to it. I enjoy doing it with people, yeah. um, with community. So, Well, since you opened that door, let's talk a little bit about that. So okay. what has been your, so you're currently working in a church, among other things, like Derek is a pastor. He's a uh, musician. You are now, as we know, a hunter. You were a former <laughs> collegiate athlete which we'll get to that in just a minute but you you have your you've kind of you know like i I feel that's true of a lot of us though like not many of us are only the one thing you know everybody's always got the other side things that are happening Mm -hmm. but being a pastor is one of those for you so now i know just a little bit you know about your stories that you have grown up in predominantly black churches that's like kind of like where it all started for you and then now you find yourself in a very much uh, multi-generational, multi-culture, cultural kind of church uh, experience, you know, that it's still kind of nestled in a, a, suburb, a suburbia of Atlanta. But I'm curious to you, like, for you, like, what has that faith journey been like moving from these, like, very, like, it's, it's all black to mm-hmm. now oh, I'm yeah. in this blended mix and i mean even probably in the middle there maybe you were in the only black guy at a church full of white people you may have had those experiences and so i'm curious like what has that been like and even you can even talk about too which is you know for some that grow up in church they either say i want to like do this thing or i don't want to do this thing you know Mm -hmm. at a certain point and and what kind of either brought you back to saying, I'm going to be this pastor kind of person. And we may need to, that may be longer answer than we were ready for, but, but we'll see where, where we go. But yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All of it's pretty connected. Um, so yeah, man, I grew up in uh suit and tie wearing uh like stomp clap men's meeting at 8am uh, church of Christ. And it, I mean, just formational, like really, really formational. There's, if you listening have never um, experienced or been a part of uh, black church and black church culture, I would recommend that on your, um, not even like a to-do list, like it's something like you should see or visit or anything like that, but just find ways to incorporate that into your uh, daily spiritual routine outside of Kanye West's album. 
Um, we'll get to that later, but maybe. <laughs> but anyways, um, <clears throat> we can get there. But, but for me personally, it was growing up in black church is really special because there's, in my opinion, um, and from my vantage point, a really large sense of community. So, like, in a lot of ways, there wasn't and isn't separations between like black church, community life, um, uh, political happenings, social injustice. Like, so much of the church was involved in our community as well and what was going on. And um, I'm not saying that white churches aren't like that, but it, it, it felt more emphasized, I guess. And there's yeah. a lot of things that were we weren't afraid to talk about right. or things happening in our life that were just a part of a part of us. There was there weren't many um there weren't many masks I felt that I felt like. Now I was, you know, coming up in middle and high school, so you know, you don't always see everything. But right. um it it just felt like a, a really authentic experience for me. Um and so then I started to enter into more white spaces. And that was the first time that I ever experienced instrumental music, which was yeah, really interesting. I believe it. I believe it. Um, a lot of black ter- churches of Christ are just incredibly conservative in a lot of different type of ways. And so what do you, I, what do you think that is? Why do you think that is? I've always, I've pondered that for a long time and have tried to, to articulate it, but mm-hmm. I'm always interested in what other people like as who've been a part and kind of, maybe stepped on the outside looking inside of it. Yeah. So being liberal in thought, what am I going to say here? So being liberal in thought (laughs) in a lot of ways is a product of white privilege. So there's a lot of, in my opinion, there's a lot of um, racism that surrounds education the opportunities and abilities to um, have higher level higher level education in theological spaces, and so there's a lot of black theological seminaries that have been good for black people, but that's not always readily accessible for a lot of different access reasons. And so, because of that, there's many black churches that come from um, just old spirituals that are really reincarnated from tradition. And there's things that are just held for long periods of time. Like there's a a real value in tradition and there's a real value in what our ancestors and forefathers said. And out of respect for that and not wanting to move past that, there can be a slower transition into maybe a more progressive way of thought, I guess. Um, But then on top of that, you find a lot of black pastors, like in black churches of Christ, having a, a salary that's like solely sustained by the church uh, you, that's when you really know that you've like you've made it. Like you, you probably attend a really large black church. Of Christ, right. But just, yeah, to be yeah. honest with you, in black church of Christ, most pastors have two jobs, that's maybe true. sometimes three. That's true. And so, on top of that, having the opportunity to be able to go to, um, you know, just do some of the other like theological seminaries and stuff uh, may not always be available. Now, I want to put a caveat in there. In no way am I saying that. Uh, black pastors are inferior or unable to learn or unable oh, not to, a chance. to yeah. achieve scholarship by any means. But I just think that that access makes it a little bit harder for black pastors to be able to do in a lot of ways uh, at predominantly black churches. And so that can drive conservation or conservatism um, in theological thought. So that's yeah. my perspective. Yeah. And, and I think too, like in, and even to that point of like how some, 
work two and three jobs, have a family potentially, doing all this other stuff, and also kind of preaching, teaching, evangelizing at the church using those kind of terms. And if you are paid by the church, then you need to be working like you're working two or three jobs. Right. So like if a, <laughs> if a member of the church needs you, you're there. Like right. at a drop of, you know, at a drop of a hat. Like, so it's, it's almost like this, you know, and you know, you've got to bring that three job work energy to the thing that you're doing. If mm-hmm. it's, if it, especially if it's just the one thing that you're doing, the one way that you're receiving some kind of, some kind of income. So I, I definitely, I definitely have seen that in a lot of, uh, a lot of black, and, and that's a, and that's a true statement for, for any pastors. I feel like in some ways it's like, you're, you feel like, am I doing enough mm-hmm. because I, I want to be honoring of this body of people that I'm ministering to pastoring to, et cetera. So it's interesting. Okay. So yeah, keep going. So you were, so going to a predominantly white church now, that's where you kind of got introduced to instrumental worship and some other ways of thinking. Yeah. 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 Um, that, so when I went to college, I went to University of Tennessee in Knoxville, go Vols. And no, uh-uh. uh, I uh, see. I, there's almost like a when you live in the South, like it's almost like if you say anything related to an SEC school, like this, like visceral reaction, it's like wells up inside of people. It's like I can't even tell you where I went to college. It's like dividing line. All I was trying to do is just tell y'all where I went to college. Yeah, unless it's like a school that no one. It's like, oh, I went to you know uh, Missouri. It's like, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, like thanks. How'd you like it? How'd you like? Was you it good? I guess it's good. Yeah, yeah. and you're here. So. <laughs> but yeah, you um, went to UT, you went to University of Tennessee Knoxville. Yeah, had the best four years uh, of my life to date. Um, I hope to have four more better years, but uh, right now that was like some of the best years of my life, met my best friends. Um, And so kind of call back to a question you asked earlier, my love for outdoors and things like that really drew me to a specific crowd um, and a really specific kind of Christian, you know, like there's, there's some, some, uh, I don't want to stereotype, but you, you just find some common generalities and different kinds of Christians and so I ran with a relatively reformed uh, circle in a ministry called Crew, which yeah. formerly stood for Campus Crusade for Christ. And then we realized how heinous that name is. So it's <laughs> we, a bad look. Yeah, that, <laughs> it's, it's a bad look. Um, so it's just called Crew. But I loved it. I, I was a leader in there. I led worship there for a few years. And but that ministry w- is, was and still is predominantly white. And I was drawn to it because of the opportunities of leadership that I had there. Like I developed all my worship leading skills there. Um, I got the opportunity to um, to lead Bible studies and discipleship crews and all that stuff. And so that was really formational for me. I would probably say the most formational piece for me was there was this worship night on Tuesday nights called Love War. Um, and it was hosted at the Banks house for a long time. Oh yeah. And then we moved to the Ketterer's house and then we moved to a house on fourth Ave. And then they, it, at that point, United pursuit just blew up. And, um, and then I had left college, but seeing like a, an just intimate, like living room worship style, like I had never experienced anything like that before. And again, that was predominantly held in white spaces, but it was something I was so drawn to. Like it was so natural and organic and, 
of spirit filled. And so I just ate that up. Um, and so that led me to want to, as I started feeling that call in ministry in my life, to pursue churches that adopted that style of intimacy. And North Atlanta, uh, I did two internships with the student ministry. Yeah. And their worship style was really congruent with that. I felt that same type of energy. And so I found myself putting my resume in, getting hired there. And at that time, uh, the church was relatively diverse, but it's more diverse now than it was then. Yeah, it's great. But at all of those stages of my spiritual walk, except when I was younger with my family, at all of those stages on my own, I I would say if I wasn't the only one, I was in a, a minor 10% of uh, Black folk or really persons of color in those spaces. And... Um, that's a that was a tough part part of identity. Um, I don't know if we're we'll go there just yet, like right now talking about that. But that definitely is a piece of my faith journey, and um, I think there's a lot of pieces in my my spirituality that I missed because I because I occupied those spaces, and because I think some of those people missed me a little bit, and so yeah. um, that's a big part of it as well. Yeah. So I mean, so I guess yeah. Take take us there a little bit, and you know. I think for a lot of people, they, and, you know, especially my listeners who are um, white or, you know, who, um, who have just not found themselves in spaces where they are the other. Mm. And, and I'm always uh, curious for those that do find themselves in spaces where they may be the only one or, one of the only ones, how, what was that like for you? What was that like for you? And you may even remember the very first time you walked into the, the, the church or a worship setting where it's like, oh, I'm the only black guy in here. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not, there's not even like, and there's no Asian brother or sister. There's no Hispanic brother or sister. Like I am, as far as like a different shade of human, I am mm-hmm. it in this in this space so like has that do you so you say you kind of do remember that first time yeah so take us there all right i'm gonna share some stories quickly uh because i don't i usually don't appreciate long-windedness but i also don't appreciate brevity (laughs) for the sake of brevity right so i'm gonna give you all of it as efficiently as i can okay Um, let's go so I, I released an album not too long ago called Processing that has to do with this. And my album cover was actually going to be a picture of me in the fourth grade at a table. And it was a picture of me making a paper mache. Um, like it was a, we were making cows out of milk jugs. Um, kind of, kind of mad. As you do, kind of as you do. <laughs> as you do. <laughs> but anyways, so it was a picture of me and I was like happy making this thing. But you could see my eyes were super red because I had been crying. Minutes before I had, I don't, I didn't know that this picture was actually like taking on that same day. But minutes before, I had just got done crying to my teacher because I was sitting at, you know, at uh, the the desks in elementary school that have the cubbies under them and they're in pods of four or quads rather at four. I remember I was the only black person sitting at that table, and so I raised my hand and I said, "I'm the only black person at this table." And she said, Derek, Martin Luther King changed all that. And I just wept. Like, I just bawled because I was like, I guess. But like, <laughs> that felt extremely invalidating. Like, I, 
I and so I and so that started a trajectory of minimization for me mm. um, throughout my entire life and church circles. Uh, we're not name dropping anywhere, but no, in church circles yeah. and in and in school circles, people would say, "You're the whitest black guy I know," or wow. "You're you're an Oreo," or like, um, uh, and I, I would say back to them, like, "So, like, let's let's talk about that a little bit. Like, what is what does that mean? Like, because you're white, do you own snowboarding, or like, do you own?" modest mouse like do you own like what is what is being the whitest black guy you know mean um no one ever had a really good response for that and i think i i fell into that microaggression more often than most because i was in choir and i did snowboard and i did play soccer and i was on the diving team in high school and i loved to hunt and fish and again simultaneously i went to an all black church and i was a in my room like reciting Young Jeezy and Gucci Mane lyrics, and I had a rap album that no one will ever hear. And whoa, I whoa, did whoa! We, I mean, we, we, you should maybe release those tapes eventually. So, uh, if, yeah, ask Zach Formosa. That's all I'll say about that. If anybody knows him. So, anyways, yeah. So there's, yeah. I, I always lived in this dichotomy, yeah. And the insecurities that one feels in adolescence, anyways, mixed with the just the microaggressions that people would say to me. Um, and then on top of that, experiencing racism with just police brutality and in stores and with girlfriends and things like that all contributed to that insecurity that I had. And so that moves me on to these spaces that I'm occupying being the only white person. And so I, I just minimized it. I just brushed it on the rug. I don't want to make any waves because, again, like I told you all about high school, there's certain things that you have to give up in order to achieve certain levels of status and um, whatever in right. in worlds and spaces that are predominantly white, and so um, I get to this place when I'm in college, and so black men have been brutally murdered, killed, and lynched in our country for a very long time. But I remember for the first time it like hitting me really deep, and I was in the middle of a crew uh, worship night, and the first memory of a, a black man being lynched that I personally identified with, like on a heart level was when Mike Brown and Trayvon Martin uh, both got shot. And I remember my mom called me and she was like hysterical. Yeah. And the only thing that I knew to tell her was what was repeated to me by my circle. And that was, I understand mom, but you have to remember that like the gospel is the most important thing. Like, and, and though these social issues are important, like the gospel really is the most important thing. And this is what I was being told in my circles. And yeah. so I remember coming to my my discipleship group and I was distraught. Like I was, because I, I don't want to share the full story, but something very similar to the Trayvon Martin's situation happened to me um, in, in Knoxville, like not too long before that. And so I was like, like really distraught. And I was like wanting to talk about this with my eight roommates who were all white. And all of them said like, you know, I... It, it sucks that he lost his life, but you know, you really just, you need to co-op. Like, I think black people just need to cooperate with people who are trying to stop them. And wow. like, I think, I think black people need to um, just learn to be a little bit more not hostile with the police. And, and at that point, wow. that was when I felt like, okay, like this is not like that. Like something is a little bit off here. Um, if any of you are Bethel music fans, it's, 
it's similar to what what William Matthew describes as his experience when um, a lot of Bethel people when Trump's running in 16 and he's yep. kind of like scratching his head. Um and, and speaking of William Matthews, it's actually funny. Whenever William Matthews was a part of Bethel, I remember we were all Bethel fans in college. I was like, hey, there's a black man that's a worship leader in Bethel. And everyone's yeah. like, cool. And I was like, <laughs> that's oh. a big deal, y'all. <laughs> yeah, this is huge to me, you know? And so um, for years and years, I minimized that and just rested it on the rug. And then when I got to North Atlanta, um, I am going to name drop here. It was Josh Jackson. Uh, Steve Maxwell and Major Boakland just were three men of color um, amongst more at our church that like really took me, I will say took me under their wing and like, let me know that it was okay to be black in white space. Like it's okay to be who you are and you don't have to minimize those things. And so for the last five years, truly like literally only in the last five years have I been on a journey of recognizing, discovering and knowing myself in what it looks like to be black in white space, predominantly white space. Yeah, that's good, man. That's good. Um, so while we're on the Knoxville kind of chapter of your life, we kind of entered into that. the The reason that you end up going, one of the, I guess one of the reasons you end up going to Knoxville is because you were a student athlete. Facts. So how? Talk to us about what that was like, even growing up and having all this happening and being so good that you get to be on a, not only just a collegiate, you know, team, but like playing for the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Yeah. So I was a track athlete um, and track is an interesting sport because like, Track athletes and decathletes are some of the most athletic people in the entire world. And it in itself is just like not a super popular sport. Like plenty of track meets that no one came to. Like like if there was a hierarchy, a social hierarchy of like (laughs) jockhood in sports, like track is just not anywhere in the top 10, top 15. Like it's probably somewhere with what I assume bowling might be. Like no one cares about us. Um, what, and so, so wait, why do you think that is? Why do you think that that people just don't like come out for the track meet? Cause I mean, when the summer, when the summer Olympics rolls around, everyone's Everyone, locked, everyone's locked out coming and out. loaded for track. Dude, everybody loves the hundred meter except when it's the hundred meter. <laughs> like it's just, everyone loves the hundred meter except when it's, you know, I think it's got a lot to do with, um, track doesn't bring in any money for any schools. Like, so there's not any gearing like advertisement around it um it's not real high action like you have to sit in a stadium stand for all day literally 9 a.m to like 6 p.m and just watch all these events go on and people love the 100 meter uh because in 400 meter because it's so fast paced right but everything else is you you can only watch somebody run around the track so many times before it's like all right you know like right. and you got to really appreciate it and know it i, I assume it's kind of like watching golf um, <laughs> except it's, people love golf because you can play it it's easy to get into right. but track is not so easy to get into so I don't know, people just don't come out for it there's not a lot of popularity <laughs> around track except for the olympics that's true um, very true man but but yeah so running at tennessee it was uh, i mean the great great experience of my life one of the best decisions i think i ever made so fun fact my dream school was actually to go to Lipscomb. 
Um, nice. I don't know if many people know that. So <laughs> I, I dreamt of going to Lipscomb. I was impact socialized. So yeah, I, that's right. I go into impact. <laughs> I, I drank the Kool-Aid. And, I shouldn't say that, but I, <laughs> I, um, I, I believed in it and I really wanted to go there and still like absolutely love the school. And, um, and so when it came down to it, I had a track scholarship there that covered about track plus academic plus the other stuff covered about three fourths of the tuition. Um, and once we crunched the numbers, uh, I got when you sign, you get a what's called a national letter of intent and um, you get two copies, one to sign and send back and then one to sign that if you have a signing party or just right. for you and your family or whatever. And so I had a signing party at school and I signed with Lipscomb. Um, but on my letter to send back, I never sent it back because my mom and I had a conversation just like, is this what you want to do? And, you know, you're going to have to pay these student loans, blah, blah, blah. And so she basically talked me out of it in the 11th hour. And then at that time, UT called and I was like, all right, sounds good. So I got to wow. um, go to UT for very, very, very little money. Um, and that was a good, a good experience. So I enjoyed running there. Um, I enjoyed being a student athlete. Uh, really good, really good time. So what's the lesson you think you learned from, you know, being a student athlete from, you know, all the way in high school, even college, what would be like the, here are the, the, you know, the, the, uh, pearls of wisdom that I gained because I not only did, you know, student of a student athlete in high school and middle school, but even in college, which is a you know totally different level. Like what yeah. would you say are some of the things you will always appreciate, hang on to kind of remember as man, this is, this is why that was so great and important in my life. Yeah. I'm gonna hit y'all with a Dave Ramsey quote, live like nobody else. So you can live like nobody else. Wow. So, so um, <laughs> that had to do with, my my finances uh but also it's just so if you are a college athlete and you're hearing this i would just implore you to remember and to know that like one the grass isn't always greener on the other side and that's something that i learned i guess that's really for not anyone who's not an athlete too but it's just the truth that the grass is not always greener on the other side but like when you take the time to sit down and invest and hone in on a craft and hone in on what you're wanting to do then you really will see some fruit that's reproduced. You know, I get, I get one thing that I learned from track that translates into my life right now is so many people will hire, like hire a youth minister or hire a person for like 18 months and be like, Oh my God, like this ministry didn't grow to 4,000 kids in this 18 months that I hired you, like get out of here. And I'll just be like, how are you going to plant a seed? And then like, you don't have an apple tree with all ripe apples right. in 18 months. Right. And like, you didn't even give it any time to grow and yeah. you didn't water it. That's and, and, good. and so, and that's something I learned from my skills as a, as an athlete. It's like, man, you got to sit down, you got to work hard. You have to um, like really nurture and take care of and grow the gifts that God has given you so that you can really produce um, what it is that, what that you need to be producing and that you can, produce what needs to be produced out of the skills that you have and the the gifts that God has given you. And so that was a big lesson that I learned in my my track career. I did not I was not a good steward of my my gifts and of my track gifting, I don't think. I don't feel like and I would have done that differently, but it was definitely a lesson that I learned is to steward yeah. those things well and yeah. and water your plants, you know, water your your plants and nurture your seeds so that they'll grow. 
That's good. That's good wisdom. That's good wisdom there. Now, so athlete, you know, all these kind of extracurricular interests that that you have, hobbies and that things of that nature. Then you have this music piece of yourself. And you talked a little bit about like, you know, you have an album that's out. You're, You're probably already have been writing more music. And so before you take us through a little bit of your process and and what you kind of, you know, are, are after and moving towards as a, as a musician, my, my question then with all of this, with the music and with the running as an athlete and with the passion for ministry and, and even just worship in general, like what is, what was, what was that home life like that led you to, like, did you just come out of the womb, like I'm gonna, I'm gifted at all of these things, like, <laughs> like, or, or was there did did mom or dad like just basically say, here is all the permission slips to do all of the things, like what, like oh. so, t- tell me about, tell us about like that part, because like so many people like don't, you know, they're not moving in this kind of these kind of ways in mm-hmm. their life. Yeah, so. I'm going to hit a, a bit of a shameless plug here, um, but it's very important. So um, on my album Processing, I have a song. It's called um, Find My Way. And at the end of it, I have a, a video or a quote from my mom. I recorded my mom on there and she starts talking and she just she will all the time call me. This conversation took place like 2 a.m. And she'll all the time just call me and be like, I couldn't sleep. And boy, I just wanted to let you know that like you can do anything that you want to do. Like God has got you. He has favored you. Um, God loves you so much. And don't ever let Satan take your joy. Don't ever let Satan take what God has given you because you have like the power to be and to do whatever you want. And like that, that capture on the song um, really captures her voice in my life for a long time. Right. So um, without getting anybody in trouble here or anything like that, <laughs> I... I personally have never understood or I've never felt or experienced a lack of female spiritual leadership in my life. Um, My mom mixed with my grandma mixed with my aunties are like, I mean, truly the biggest spiritual influences in my life. Um, My dad uh, is a a big part of that as well, but I'm kind of talking about my mom here, but she just would always tell me like, you can do whatever you want to do. Like you can be whoever you want to be. You have the tools to succeed in whatever ways you want to. And I believe that, like I felt that, you know, I internalized that. And so whenever I saw something again, mixed with my uh, personality that looked fun or looked like something I wanted to do, I knew that I had my mom and my dad in my corner uh, championing me on and wanted to go. And so in a way, they did give me permission slips to uh, to be and to go and to do. Um, now, I, that did not come without fault. Because, oh, sure. Um, you know, I will say, so this is a, kind of a funny story. She might get mad at me for saying this, but <laughs> I'm going to say it anyway. So what ended my track career early is, uh, y'all, if you know me, you, you've seen it, but you can't see it. I have a huge scar from about the top of my thigh down to my shin. Mm-hmm. And it's because I broke my kneecap in half. And I broke my kneecap in half because I was wakeboarding on Lake Loud and in Knoxville, like 
days before uh, in the SEC championship for uh, track and field. Very smart so, thing to do is what I hear. Super smart. Super <laughs> smart. And so anyways, I broke my kneecap. My mom, I, I go to the emergency room. My mom came and picked me up. And like I was in and out of consciousness on the drive home because everything was ruined. I mean, track, like I'd never be the same athlete again. Like I couldn't do my internship at North Atlanta. Like everything was ruined. Right. And on the way home, I was in and out of consciousness. So my mom was on the phone with my dad and some other people. But I just distinctly remember her saying, Derek, always hanging out with them white people. And he got hurt again. He know good and well he shouldn't have been wakeboarding. And I was just like, <laughs> it was funny because oh, that's like, funny. like just wakeboarding and trying to do everything all yep. the time. So yep. trying to do everything all the time, it can, it can. Uh, just a seven being a seven. A seven being a seven, baby. Um, and she did not say that maliciously toward white people. But no, it was, it was no, more no. of a joke than yeah. it was at all. But um, it was just that in and of itself was kind of a microcosm of some of the successes and faults of doing everything. But for the most part, like kind of how you said it, like I do believe that they gave me the permission slip to just, you can be and do whatever and whoever you want to be. And I've internalized that I really did. And I strived for those different experiences. So, so yeah, so just kind of, you know, give us a little bit about the music this you've, we've touched on it. We've kind of visited this, this album (laughs) that you've dropped, like talk about like, what your hopes, desires, your dreams, your direction is, like what you're thinking about next. Like what is, what's this kind of music side of Derek? And obviously we're not getting a hip hop. It's not hip hop albums. Yeah. You know, they're, they're something different. Yeah. So um, if anybody is a fan of all time low, um, I, they, <laughs> I'm telling you that it's eclectic. It's eclectic. So, so good. Um, so wrong it's right uh like they had an album that was very formational for me as a youth um and i used to pride myself on my like knowledge of music this is pre-spotify so like it was a big deal if you knew who who was like you had to do some research to like to know underground music and you really had to know about dat piff and you had to know about like different up-and-coming artists and living in the music city you kind of hear about different things a little bit before you know other places and whatnot and so i really prided myself on finding my way into some of those circles you know um underground shows and stuff like that at rocket town and like just different places and so um that music in, in itself is always a big part of me i get that from my parents as well um and so growing up i like exclusively listened to r&b uh and old soul and never actually really didn't listen to hip hop a ton, but I listened to a ton of R&B and um, old soul growing up. And then when I got to middle school, I started skating and I was a pretty intense skater. And that was when I started to develop a love for Devil Wears Prada, Job for Cowboy, All Time Low, Mayday Parade, etc. Um, and that started formulating a pretty well-rounded music taste. Um, and so after that, it took off. I couldn't decide who I wanted to sound like. Like I started playing guitar, um, right. shouts out Robert Lindsay. He, uh, actually <laughs> like, was my first guitar teacher, wow. <laughs> um, him and also who today. So this, this individual I'm about to name drop is my biggest music influence. And today I actually have the privilege of working with him. Uh, so Nate Hale 
he, I remember at our church camp, I used to just sit and ask him to play his music. Like I would just on repeat, just listen to his stuff. And he by far is my, one of at least my biggest, if not my biggest musical influence. And all of that, just combinations, just introducing me to different styles and different types. And so that started to formulate who I, I am today. And so I started wanting to make my own music. Like I said, me and my boy, Zach, we have a few, um, a few songs out of some old rap stuff that no, I mean, truly no one will ever hear uh, just because it is tragic. The, the amount of legalism that was like just scripted into my music <laughs> is out, out of sorts, like truly out of sorts. I would feel like I was committing like a spiritual crime, just letting people listen to that. Yeah. Um, but it's good to keep that kind of stuff around because it reminds you of yes. where, of where you've been and where, where you're at and where and where you're wanting to go. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so I always a lover of music. When I got to college, I cut a record my senior year. Um, again, that only there's only so there's only 186 people in the entire world who own that album. And I know that because we only we only had two or three hundred CDs and we only sold 186 of them. So wow. um that that was a big part of my music. And from there, it just took off. And yeah. really what happened there was I wanted to make more music, but I didn't want to pay for it. So I started to learn how to produce and to engineer and to record. Um, and really, that just took a mind of its own. I just fell in love with it. Um, I started staying up until 4, 5, 6 a.m. recording music and then just taking a shower and going to work the next day. Um and I, I started realizing that I had something to say, you know what I mean? Yeah. A, a different perspective on life. And that came from just writing poetry as a kid and stuff to turning into songs. And um, so right now where I'm at, I, to be honest with you, Patrick, I don't know if I want to go the artist route or the producer route. Um, and, and if I want to go the route at all, to be honest, you know, yeah. I'm in full-time ministry right now. And it's just like, there's a lot that goes into being a, an artist, especially like starting off, you know, like there's location and geography and then there's um, financial concerns and there's like listenership. And then there's just like the identity piece that's so tied up in your craft. Like it's like yeah. when people don't like my music, that literally means they don't like me. And yeah. even if they don't mean that, that's how I internalize it. Right. Like there's a lot of vulnerability with it. And, um, and so there's, I mean, anyone who's taken the leap to being a full-time musician, like I just have so much respect because it really, there's a lot that it takes to do that. And I don't know personally if I'm ready to do that, but I have been going in the producing and engineering and mixing route and that's been going really well for me. And so I, I live in both worlds. Um, but you asked this question literally at my crossroads. Like I'm, I'm like <laughs> thinking about it right now, like yeah. in this season of just like where, where do I want to go? What do I want to do? You know, I have some music in the vault right now that is in in the works and in the process that uh, may or may not be released in and of itself. But, um, you know, musical creativeness, it always finds its way out of you in some way or another. Yeah. So um, my thoughts and, and, and dreams and hopes that I want to release in music find their way out in other artistic, artistic expressions. And so... Um, as my life trajectory, as we talked about before, my life trajectory, I don't stay anywhere for long. So right. <laughs> I may be a musician today and I might be painting tomorrow. Like, yeah. who knows? Well, but, and, and, I, right. and I think you had a great point there in that 
any artist, whether you're doing music or whether it's writing or whether it's any kind of painting, design, anything, any kind of like creation that comes from that genuinely comes from you is mm-hmm. so like vulnerable and so precious because it's like I'm putting my my whole self in this thing. And yes. so if you don't enjoy it or if it gets that's why when when I feel like when you see artists and and groups of people take, you know, very angry reactions towards criticisms cuz like this is like everything that I put out there like it's like a it's a it's a baby it's like mm-hmm. my 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 child my precious like so it's like any parent and we all have uh, you know all of us you know have a parent guardian someone who is like a figure of that kind of presence in our life they defend us you know and look out for us and will yes. and will want to fight someone if someone like you know comes at us like that and it's the same yes. i feel like that same kind of energy exists when you um put something out there to yeah um to the world so i totally i totally get that i can i can see that being a thing um okay so i i want to get us to a couple things before we get out of here um one thing i wanted to ask you since you are a, a pastor and i've had a couple of pastors on the uh on the podcast but i'm always interesting and, and we'll bring you back on another time and we can talk more about this but What's been maybe one or two things that you've been learning in the the you know few years, and you've been in this thing for for a few years now, being a being a if you especially if you count up all the internship leadership kind of positions that you've had in your in your life so far, you've been in kind of this ministry pastoring game or you know life you know for a while now, and so I guess like what is the thing that like as you kind of look back on what you've been what you've seen, what you've learned, what you've experienced, like what would be like, here's what I'm seeing, learning, here here's my take on what's kind of been happening and, and what's going on and and how I would love to speak to if I just could say here's what what is really resonating or what I'm noticing in the lives of young adults, because we both do young adult mm-hmm. stuff, young adult college students, that kind of thing. Um, what, yeah, what's your, what's your take? What's the, yeah. what's the Derek? The hot take. Hot Here we take. Go. Yeah. <laughs> this is where if you're, if you're from, uh, you know, I'm not, if you're from my home church where I work, then, uh, I would ask that you not repeat. No, I'm just fine. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, no, the things that I have learned, number one is that, and the things that I would speak to that I'm seeing is just that God owns my ministry. The church doesn't. And so who yeah. I am and how I minister and like the gifts that I have in ministry are are God's and God's alone and for me to manifest. I am so privileged and blessed to be a part of the church that I am a part of um, and, and to get to work at the church that I get to work. And it's it's super great and it's super amazing. And on top of that, there's other things that I have my ministry wise in my life that are gods, you know? And so having, when you're in full-time ministry, it's just so important to have the, the separation of those things. Um, because in a lot of ways, working for church can just be so wrapped up in your whole life. Like it, it can just encompass your whole life because you're, you're working with people right. and people are important and people don't have schedules all the time. Like when crisis hits, it's not like on, on the, on the dot at six o'clock, you know, like you can't just clock in and clock out of that. Right. Stuff. That's right. Um, and so it, it encompasses your whole life. 
And at the same time, you have to remember that um, there's a separation there between what's God's and what's like, what is your job and what's yours in your personal life and just having good boundaries with that and having the appropriate boundaries with that. So I think that boundary struggle is something that I've learned and I'm seeing happening. Um, people over profit is something that I have Ooh. just noticed is it, it's just important, Absolutely. especially in ministry, like valuing, recognizing, understanding, believing, believing the testimony of and, and the, the, the word of people is so much more important than profit, than system, than programming, than the ends justify the means, than the greater good, whatever. Like people are more important. Um, another thing that I'm learning and it's just, it's so important for the church to speak on places that are important in people's lives. And yeah. we don't, we don't do it enough in my opinion. So you might attend a church that does, and that's really awesome. But there's a lot of churches that just like are super afraid to talk about what's going on in the world. And so there's a, a dichotomy. There's a, a bit of a, I don't want to call it a slippery slope, but you have to learn how to be a part of the world and in the world and all of those things, but still maintain direction from God and keep the main thing, the main thing. Um, you know, I think that the state, if you will, uh, should have its way of operating and things that are good for the state and the Absolutely. church way. But I, yeah. I don't know that the church should just like go on about its business. Like culture doesn't matter or like culture yeah. isn't influential on the way that we think and what yeah. we do. And even what you like, the way that you interpret scripture is not unbiased. Like it's not uncultured <laughs> or it's not like, and I'm sorry to tell you, oh, but boy. like, if you're listening, like how, how you see the world through the lens of your spirituality is shaped and incubated and socialized by a certain way of thinking. And it's important for the church to talk about that and to understand that piece of our history and for us to understand that piece of history in and of itself so that we can have open and honest conversation um, about what that is and and specifically to to really recognize what's going on with the youths um, yeah, that's and, right. and what's happening in our world. So those are just a couple of things what, that I've kind of seen. And I think you're, I think you're exactly right is... Our people, people who are attending churches, live in the world. And yes. so for those that work in church to not speak to what is happening in the world is disingenuous. Because it's like, it's like that doesn't exist out there. Yes. Like it's, it's all, it's all, it all matters. It all should be talked about. And my whole thing and, and that I'm very committed to is that if it's a conversation that is happening around dinner tables, around campfires, around water coolers, in office spaces, at coffee shops, at bars, we should be having the same kind of conversations in our places of faith. Because how, how are we going to speak to culture? How are we going to speak to these conversations if we're not having these kind of conversations in our own spaces? Mm -hmm. and, it, and it needs to be a, a safe space, as triggering as a phrase that is for some people, I do not care, but it's, it's a safe place for you of people who are faith people, who are Jesus people to say, okay, let's have this out. Let's talk about this. Let's, mm -hmm. let's let me say the thing that I've been thinking about in this room of other people who also kind of b believe in the same things that I believe in. And then you who are on this journey with me can say, 
Ooh, I don't know about that one. I don't know. Mm. I don't know if I'm saying like that. Like, let's talk about that versus like me getting on my keyboard or on my phone and just like throwing something out into into the world, which which we so often do. (laughs) All of us are guilty of that. No one is no one is innocent of that. So that that is a great segue to. And I know everybody was like, are they going to talk about it? Yes, of course we are. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I, I wanted to, to at least us have a, a little bit of a, a time in this, in this um, episode, in this conversation we've been having to talk about what, what has been happening right now in, in our, in our country. Um, so I don't, mm. I don't, have to i mean if you're if you you would have to be someone who has been quarantined in a bunker to not know what has been happening right now and what has yeah. been happening right now for a long time and so i i dare i just want to hear as you sit in atlanta and as you um are in in, in your quarantine life with your wife like what what have you been noticing, thinking about, you know, how have you been processing all of literally the injustices that have been happening for for a very long time? And now it's it's back again in in a uh, in a big time way. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to I don't want to apologize, but I just want to give a caveat in advance that this is really emotional for me. Um, it's a really sensitive topic because I'm, uh, I am a black man as stated before, and this hits black communities differently than it, and it does not. So I've been, I've been thinking a lot of things. Um, I've been scared for my life. Um, I don't want to die. Like I don't want to be walking in the park. Uh, I don't want to be out for a jog in Georgia. Right. right. I don't want to be, um, in the world while black, uh, and lose my life because someone perceived my action as something other than what it is. And that's something that we're seeing, you know, there's, um, there's just a lot to say about it. Yeah. I think that, I guess in a succinct way, I'm trying to think of the best way to approach it, but I just hope that if people are seeing what's going on in the world and it's something that it, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, resonate with you or it doesn't like you see that and you feel a a desire to just scroll and just move past it and not, uh, acknowledge it, then I, I would say that that in and of itself is a a bit of a form of privilege. Um, It's a privilege to not have to worry about injustices that are happening. And it's a, it's a privilege to not um, have to deal with that, to not have to speak about it in your church, to not have to come out and make a statement because something like this is ravaging your community. Um, That's, that's a privilege. And for me, I would just, just a word of encouragement to black listeners that, um, one, God is a good God, um, and he's a good God giving good grace to undeserving people. Two is that uh, the sun will rise tomorrow. And so though uh, today is bleak and today is lowly, um, one cannot steal joy that's not given by that person. And so 
Um, I've got joy that's from from God. It's not from anyone else but Him, and so or he, or her. <laughs> uh, it is not in from anyone else but God. Right. And so uh, that can't be taken away from me. Um, if you're a white listener and you you have you feel a call to action, there's a few things that I would say uh, to you in your call to action. One, please stop posting the picture of George Floyd's death. Um, I, when it it's, it's ooh, um, yeah, I know. it is so hurtful, appalling, um, disgusting to me that we have to post the dead body of George Floyd for people to believe that this is unjust. And the fact that you have to post it side by side with a picture of Colin Kaepernick to try to make a point um, is so unjust. I would, I would call you and ask you to post pictures of George Floyd's life um, and to celebrate his life and who he was and what he, what he is. Um, the same thing with other victims of injustice injustices. Um, I would also say that if you are trying to convince yourself that you're not racist, um, you may take a look and try to see the ways that you are or the right. ways that you have been complicit to racism. Um, because I, I think that we all have been complicit in some ways, but definitely for white listeners, I think that um, there is a, an implicit complicity to racism um, just because of the system of the world that we live in. And so I would just take a second to look at ways that you have contributed instead of spending time maybe convincing that you're you're not or you you haven't been um i think that these deaths have have been going on for a long time and and now people whenever i hear i'm shocked i'm i'm i can't believe this is happening are you serious what it it almost is offensive to me that right. my pain and my reality is so far out of touch from your reality that you haven't had to think about or haven't had to deal with that. Um, and my pain so far out of touch. Um, you know, there's so many statistics that, that show what racism looks like. Um, just a few of those, like black students are suspended three times higher than white students. Yeah. Um, black youth, uh, or, or white youth are, I think it's like maybe, or they're more, Statistically speaking, they use drugs more than black youth, but black youth are arrested and tried 11 times higher than white youth are for yeah. drug use. 100%. Um, black men make up 6% of the population and make up 40, 46% of the prison population. Um, like all which, of this is just yeah, injustice. In which honestly, it's like, I can't believe that that, that stat alone doesn't make you pause and say something Something mm -hmm. is not right. Mm -hmm. Something is not right. And I think you're exactly right. Yeah, but keep going. Yeah. Yeah. And and so I just think there's a call to self-education. Um, I think there's a call to to lowering yourself and learning about other people. You know, I this is the work of Jesus. Um, and and really I guess where I'd I'd like to land my plane, I guess, is that this is not separate from the gospel. Like this is not a different conversation no. than the gospel conversation. Like Christ, Christ was someone who came to overturn systems for the oppressed and to make way for people who have the police's knee on their necks. Like the people who are at the, the lowest of societal hierarchical totem poles, um, Christ comes to liberate those individuals and make a way 
and make a way um, for those people to experience real and true authentic love from the Father and experience real and authentic justice in the societies that they live in. And so I believe that. I believe that Paul speaks to this when he talks about the mystery of the gospel, because let us not forget that Jew and Gentile are not Baptists and Pentecostals. They are not Presbyterians and Methodists. These are people groups. These are diverse groups of people that Paul's like, look, I know y'all don't like each other because of where you're from and what you like, what you look like, but y'all got to figure this out because like, if you remember Cornelius's vision, if you remember our Acts 11 and our Acts 10 and 11, um, um, analogies here and, and stories here, you have to remember that, the the cultural practices right this is not whether you 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 like uh songs from selections or faith and praise hymnal books this right. is cultural practices that you deem as impure and unacceptable in the eyes of Christ are not the case so let's figure out what this looks like for us to reconcile to come together um and to believe that the kingdom of god and our diversity and all of our differences um, how do we make space for all of this? Diversity is not to separate, but how can we sit to look, to include, to say those things are different. Let those be a part of my life. Um, well, yeah, I think that's a racial reconciliation. Yeah. Piece. And, and I think too, that if you are, um, a part of a faith community that is desiring to be a diverse community and your collective community is silent or neutral on these particular issues, how do you think that that's going to work? Mm -hmm. How do you think that people who are black and brown and Asian, who are of different life uh, circumstances, who are of different social economical circumstances, if you're not speaking up in in all of these ways, like how do you feel like diversity is going to happen in your particular faith community? Right. Yes. How many more least of these verses do you need to hear before you understand the people that we're talking about are the least? Yes. Like numerically the least. Yes. <laughs> and and being attacked in 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 very least kind of way. Yes, like socially it's socially the least. Socially the least, right? And I I know there's been lots of photos posted on on social media on Instagram and on Twitter and one of the the things that I that I just thought was spot on it's a few things but there was one thing that someone pulled a quote from Desmond Tutu that says if you are neutral in situations of injustice you have chosen the side of the oppressor yeah and um, yeah I, I, so that quote. There's there's two places that Tutu quotes that, and in the first place that he quotes it, there's a the latter half of that quote. So he says that first part, and he says, yeah. "If an elephant has its foot on the mouse's tail, and you're neutral about that, the mouse won't appreciate it very much." Um, and that analogy in and of itself is so. If a if an elephant has a foot on the mouse's tail, so let's flip that a little bit. If the police have their knee on George Floyd's neck, okay, and you have nothing to say about that and you're neutral, George Floyd, black communities, the least of these, won't appreciate that very much. You have chosen the side of the oppression. 
Yeah. Like your neutrality has chosen the side of the oppressor. This extends to, oh, I don't want to post about it. I don't want to, um, I don't want to make any waves. I don't want to be, I don't want to create any type of um, animosity around this. I appreciate that. So the next hashtag that happens because someone was killed by your silence, like, I hope you don't expect the thank you for that. Um, and and I, I hope that no one takes that as anything but a call to action and yeah. as a challenge. That's not to demean anyone's or to shame anyone's no. previous no. experience or past, but it's a call to action to say, especially for for our white listeners here, like action is in order. Like like <laughs> there is racist and there's anti-racist. There is no in-between. Right. You are one or the other. You are either participating in racism or actively participating in anti-racism. But there is no neutrality because your neutrality always chooses a side. And that is the side of the oppressor or the side of what the system has already put in place. And and my thing, too, there there's so many wonderful books I've seen posted about online, which is great. But my thing is now it's time to actually do the summer reading or the summer listening instead of just posting about here are some good books and just Mm -hmm. witnessing. Oh, there are some good books. And so instead of reading through Harry Potter again, instead of reading the next business book, instead of listening to more of, of the same kind of podcast that you've been listening to, mine included, you should pick one of those books. Mm-hmm. Put that on your audio listening. Throw that into your, to your commute wherever you're going. Yes. Listen to it with your family. Have the discussion. Sit yeah. with the sit with the content. There's so I mean, there's too many books out there, yeah. and you and can find them. Right. books, books, and podcasts and things of black voice because one an issue that we find. So something that I, I've seen a lot of people are reposting Christine Kane and Steve Furtick and Elevation and and all of this is good. Like I'm so glad that those individuals are posting, but you need to post for yourself or repost black voice right. because what happens is if we continue to post white voice about black struggle then you're just perpetuating a, a white That's a good. white owned and white white supremacist word I, I was trying to avoid that word but a world that is uh a vo- circulated and run by the white voice and so i would just say that if if you're going to repost, start following um, black people. You might say, I don't follow any black people. Well, just a few people that you can follow. Austin Channing Brown, Ibram Kendi, Mrs. Yeah. Beck Yeti. You can follow the NAACP. Um, you can follow a lot of different people. Rachel Cargill. All of these people have yes. are people that you can follow and repost their voice so that black voice on the issue can be uplifted and that in and of itself is one like one action step that can be taken to start to give black people their voice in the world that we live in yeah and and you know and i and i want to say one other thing and then uh we'll we'll you know put a pin in this for now and there's much to talk Mm -hmm. about and we can always come back to this conversation but um for those of you who are um who are white who are listening know that all of your black and brown and asian and multiracial friends are watching you they're mm. watching you they're noticing your post 
They may not ever say anything to you, but they're watching you. They're watching what you post about, how you post about it, what you're saying, what you're not saying. And if you think that no one is noticing you not, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. And just because someone doesn't call you to the carpet in the moment doesn't mean that they're not watching. Because here's Mm -hmm. the deal. You would say, well, no one's, no one's calling me out. You know what? No one, some people don't have the energy. Some black and brown people don't have, an, they, they're, out of, they're out of energy. They're mm-hmm. tired. Yes. And so, and, and, and so in, instead, they're just going to let, let you drift. And you'll just won't be hearing from them as much. Mm-hmm. They won't be sharing with you their, their life's struggles and joys and pains anymore. You would just become, another face that they interact with because that's, that's the space they have to exist in or the space that they're existing in at the moment. Mm-hmm. People are watching you. Mm-hmm. And to my black and brown listeners, know that we, we this is the time of, of, of any time. We've, we, we've been doing this, but let's continue to support one another, love mm-hmm. each other well, care for each other, Check in on each other because we're all experiencing this in so many different ways. And if you think just because the black friend that you have has degrees on degrees, who has a nice job, who lives in a nice neighborhood, if you think that this isn't affecting them, you're wrong. Yes. And, and, and I know in the back of your mind, you're like, well, the black friend that I have, they're not one of those blacks. Mm-hmm. I want you to say that out loud to yourself. Mm-hmm. And you will see how problematic that kind of thinking truly is. Um, yeah. I don't know. There you go. Oh, this is good. <laughs> yeah. Really good, Patrick. Thanks. So, okay. Well, uh, we'll we'll put a pin on this for now, and we we'll may come back to it another other episodes. But let's do a little speed round with Derek, and then we'll. Who knows how long? I don't know how long this thing's been. It's it's probably going to be one of the longer episodes, and that's okay because okay, we yeah. we do what we do. We do what we do. Okay. So here's I think I gave you the speed round questions, and so we'll we'll see where this takes us. Okay, okay. Derek. So give us a few of your favorite quotes right now. All right. So um, I have three. Say them quickly. So one is actually from Desmond Tutu, uh, a quote that I love. He says, we may be surprised at the people we find in heaven. God has a soft spot for sinners. His standards are quite low. Um, That in of itself is like, I think it speaks for itself. I don't even need to explain that. But God has a soft (laughs) spot for sinners. Um, Justin Bagwell, the youth minister at the church that I work at, North Atlanta Church of Christ, he always says, never doubt your influence. And that quote is just so, like, it's so encompassing because you never know who you're going to influence. You never know who's watching you. You never know what kind of influence and who you're changing, who you're shaping. Uh, Our words matter and our decisions affect the rest of the world. And so um, it's important. It's just important. Um, And then Justin Bagwell. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, shouts, shouts out. Um, so the last one is some people say it don't be like it is, but it do. 
<laughs> I have no idea who said that, <laughs> but it's the truest thing that I have ever heard in my life. If you've been friends with me for any length of time, I've said this to you 100%. Um, I also have a song about it called But It Do, but some people say it don't be like it is, but it really do. Yeah. And sometimes like it just be like that sometimes. Yeah. Like, And some people say it doesn't, but it really do. So yeah. Yeah. those are my favorite quotes. I love it. Okay. So uh, albums people should check out or listen to if they haven't already. Hardest question anyone probably <laughs> has ever asked me. Um, so yeah. I chose them based on influence to me and yeah. what I think would be good. That's good. Um, so number one at the top of the list is 2014 Forest Hills Drive, J. Cole. Number two is The Human Condition by John Bellion. Nice. Number three yeah. is Mind Over Matter, Young the Giant. Number four is Live at the Banks House, Will Reagan and United Pursuit. Yeah. Uh, number five is What's Going On, Marvin Gaye, Ooh. the 1971 classic. Uh, and then the last one is You Should Listen to My Album. Yeah. Uh, shameless plug. No, no shame at all. That's good. Those are some strong albums. Strong, yeah, strong albums. I like it. Okay, one or two books people should read. How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram, Kim, Ibram Kendi and uh, What is the Bible by Rob Bell. I think you actually had Rob on a podcast. I did. Uh, earlier <laughs> last year. Yeah, so, I did. Wow. Yeah. Wild times. So I would say How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi and What is the Bible by yeah, Rob. That's good. Okay. So if you had, now you live in Atlanta right now, mm-hmm. but you were living in murfreesboro nashville area so i'll give it to you i want to hear it kind of from both sides so if you had to leave atlanta forever what would be some of the must go to spots places etc that you that you just had to go to before you left town only going to one and that's taco mac <laughs> oh let's go <laughs> taco mac and it's taco mac there's it's an Atlanta thing. There's one in Chattanooga there now, is, I think. There is, there is. But Downtown. Yeah, Taco Mac, it's like the most generic, chained, fast, like chained, franchised sports bar that there is. And I cannot get enough of their Three Mile Island wings. Like, that would be my last meal on my deathbed. That would be the last thing I do is eat Three Mile Island wings at Taco Mac. Okay. So mm-hmm. give us a Murfreesboro, Nashville response to that. Okay, so... The place I would go before I left is I would go fish the honey hole at Percy Priest Lake. So Jay Percy Priest grew up on that lake fishing there. It's so special to me. I would go with some specific people, but I'd have to do that before I left, which I did do that before I left That's uh, good. Murfreesboro for the first time. So um, as far as going to eat, I would go to Demas's. Uh, in Murfreesboro. That is such a Murfreesboro <laughs> response. <laughs> I would I would go to Divas's or I would go to Toots because those are the two best restaurants in Tennessee. Well, whoa, so, what? No. Two uh, best restaurants. Get and out of here. I, I know y'all are all for the Loveless Cafe. I know y'all are all for the hot chicken. Okay, you can have that. Up 24, it's a totally different world. But oh, if you come boy. on the south side of 24, then oh, go boy. east from Nashville. Demises and Toots is where you got to go. You wild. <laughs> <laughs> and then what do you think are some of the keys to a good life? Yeah, so this is also a Desmond Tutu idea. It, well, he's he's 
noted for his quotes on it. It's actually just a, an African idea, um, but it's called Ubuntu. And so Ubuntu is bringing, it, it means I am because we are. And so it, it's the idea that bringing people together, this is a quote from Desmond. He says, it, bringing people together is what I call Ubuntu, which means I am because we are. For too often, people think of themselves as just individuals separated from one another, whereas whereas you are connected and what you do affects the whole of the world. When you do well, it spreads out to for the whole of humanity. And so it's just a remember and a reminder that like, one, what you do matters. Like in yeah. the in the existence of the world, what you do matters. It affects other people. Everything you do affects someone. And if we can remember that I am because we are. When we all pro- like, when one person prospers, we all prosper. When one person fails, we're all failing in that way because uh, we are together. Like we are God's children. We should strive to be and to act in that way, to uplift one another's gifts, uplift each other, and to live in a way that is um, conscious of other people around us, and that is accepting and inclusive of all those that we inhabit this earth with and and treat the earth right. So, Man, that's good. Derek, thank you. This has been fun. Yes. We will for for sure have another another round of this. Absolutely. All right, you all have a wonderful day. Peace, trade it. Peace.